Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Talk Recorded live. A-U-N American Underground Network The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human God to eliminate all risk from their life. Pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar? The public? Or the Godfather. All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, it's the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point, that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Condit, Jr., in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, thanks, everyone. Uh, We have had the privilege of of having this uh, show for eight years. It gives us all an opportunity to keep our ear to the rail uh, share unique opportunities with uh, people who have discovered information in, in, in a timely fashion. We can jump on this call, archive a track of audio, share it with people all over the world, and uh, and then come back to the same uh, subject individual to interview them a following time and a following time. We've had regular guests on this call over the years, and uh, Dr. Lehman, Dr. J. David Lehman, uh, I kind of keeping my ear to the rail of this gentleman on Facebook, Brett Gilliland. It's a tongue twister, his last name, but uh, he said he was on the phone with this gentleman for over an hour or maybe two hours, and he just wrote it down and posted it. And I thought, you know, I better jump on. We better jump on that. And and it, it has to do with so many things are happening all over the world. Uh, you can call it end times, biblical prophecy, the intersection of those two things, and the global structure of everything interconnected with corporate, governmental, political, and technological 
uh, webs that are all seemingly almost like bringing mankind to the brink of destruction, if not total enslavement. Uh, Dr. Lehman has been at the cutting edge of this research involving Common Core, Agenda 21, and End Times Prophecy, and he's here tonight to kind of lay it all out. And he's actually given me some questions behind the scenes that I'm going to not go through step by step, but they will guide me for, with, with uh, some steps of the way with uh, posing questions. So, Dr. David Lehman, thank you so much for coming on the call. And uh, you're a total stranger to us, but what you're sharing tonight is definitely not strange to our regular listeners. We have an, an ongoing interest in this subject matter, and I appreciate you coming on. We all appreciate you coming on the call tonight to share. Well, thank you for having me. And I know you've said, uh, and by the way, everyone, his bio is on our website. Feel free to uh, read it. But uh, Dr. Lehman, you have a double PhD, uh, both in divinity and uh, one at uh, another PhD at Louisiana Baptist University. You've got a master's of divinity as well. Uh, you've been a public speaker at the Eagle Forum in Orange County. You've debated atheists for years, and uh, you've got a unique background. What got you into this end times prophecy, or has this always been uh, a focal point of, of your research? Well, I I studied uh, at Grace Theological Seminary, and of course they're a dispensational school. Most of my professors were from Dallas Seminary. Dallas mostly has been focusing on the end times, I go to the Prophecy Conference every year, uh-huh. and I'm working with Doc Bishore, who I think probably has the best handle on biblical prophecy of anybody in the world. He studied under David L. Cooper. Cooper was probably one of the most brilliant people who've ever who's ever lived in this area, and very familiar with the languages. Uh, did really excellent work and basically brought to light Martin Anstey, who nobody had ever heard of, but was probably the best chronologist that the world has ever known. So I have the benefit of being um, studied under John Whitcomb, spent a lot of time with Dr. Henry Morris from the Institute for Creation Research. So I say I've just borrowed from everybody in the planet and um, just been blessed by their their research. Um, Bill Gothard told me he was kind of a collector, and I think that's what I am. But I like to be able to pass on the information to others um, and then debating atheists has always been fun. I uh, debated a uh, former Muslim-turned-atheist lesbian on homosexuality a couple months ago. And before that, I debated Richard, L- Richard C. Carrier, who has debated William Lane Craig and almost every Christian apologist. So we had a lot of fun with that. And uh, I, I've also <clears throat> felt that when we see these things happening around us, the knowledge is going to increase because now we can see how the scriptures are being fulfilled. It makes a lot more sense now. Uh, before it didn't really, it wasn't real clear, but now we see it's happening. It's very clear, and so people are asking me <laughs> on a continual basis, uh, "When when is this going to end up? How how should I prepare? How long do we have?" And I try to give them a pretty good scenario. You know, did. Uh David, last week we had a gentleman on who's been a regular listener uh, just in the wake of the news from Greece, uh, the Greece economic collapse. They voted in a referendum the last 
last weekend, no. Uh, and it looks like they may free themselves. I'm not sure what are the consequences, but the Greeks kind of going back all the way to ground zero, the first uh, democratic republic, or so to speak, or democracy, you call it, but we're not supposed to be a democracy here. But, um, you know, a small little country like that is is setting an example all over the world that's kind of on the heels of some other examples we've seen in his, recent history from Iceland. So the, the economic aspect of this seems to be unraveling before our eyes, and yet you have these global institutional entities uh, that are in Brussels running the EU, or the United Nations, and uh, that have been executing these long-term plans, and Agenda 21 being one of them, uh, is this something that goes back uh, hundreds of years? Have these elites been planning and plotting this ultimate? Uh, I mean, are they aware of, of scriptural end times prophecy, or are they operating in a vacuum? Or is one, uh, or could, could they be bl- trying to bluff us in this in the whole process? <laughs> well, that's a kind of a complicated question, but you go back to the time of Plato. And, of course, he he really didn't believe in marriage. He believed that all women should belong to all men and all men to all women. Uh, he also didn't believe in private property. He he advocated all-powerful super-state headed by philosopher kings. Of course, he was one of them. Mm-hmm. And this was taken up by uh, John Ruskin. Ruskin used to read Plato every night. He became a t- professor at Oxford. One of the students at Oxford happened to be a fellow, um, Cecil Rhodes, and he took careful notes. And oh, wow. owning the diamond mines in South Africa had a country named after him, Rhodesia, owned the gold mines, became one of the richest men in the world. And he knew that he would never realize a one-world government in his lifetime, so he set up seven wills. The first five wills were to set up this secret organization called the Round Table. Nobody really knew, but it was a circle within a circle within a circle. Very similar to the Nadi, which was very similar to the Jesuits' layout, at least, um, <clears throat> because you would never know who was really running things. <clears throat> However, manpower in England, because of the war, depleted to such an extent that they moved their headquarters to the United States, became the Council on Foreign Relations, which has basically been being responsible for the United Nations. And this is how it's developed. The first five of his wills became uh, this uh, secret organization. Then the last will was to head up the his uh, Rhodes Scholarship to train people to take on this and this has been the plan ever since the world's come under a single idea of collectivism which crushes the lives and aspirations of individuals in its utopian quest for heaven on earth thomas more penned it in his utopia edward bellamy wrote it in looking backward alfred lloyd tennyson described it when the flags would be unfurled in the parliament of man that was something that interestingly enough harry truman uh, kept in his wallet his whole life. And H.G. Wells detailed the plan for planetary superstate in the book The Open Conspiracy. <clears throat> the idea was the wealthiest and most politically powerful men in the world realized that a world government could multiply their wealth and power to unbelievable levels by putting under them a monopoly of world commerce and finance. You know, they became schemers. 
when they realize how much uh, how much money is enough, just a little bit more. And under the guise of abolishing war and poverty, the world's most gigantic monopolistic trust was created. And as justification for the surrender of our national sovereignty and spending trillions of dollars, it was necessary to have an enemy. So thus the Soviet Union was created and has been maintained by the very men who were supposed to be its arch enemies. This elite group would have us believe that the world government will bring us perpetual peace and prosperity if we'll only surrender our sovereignty, both individual and national, give up our declaration of independence, scrap our constitution, establish a world court, world tax system, and world army. But solving problems at the city level is pretty difficult. I I was in the city government for a long time. And it's even more complicated at a county level. Solving problems at the state level is a bed of nails, and the federal level becomes a quagmire of politics, bureaucracy, red tape, and corruption. Can you imagine what it would be like on a global level with a government run by foreigners who despise us and hate us? David, go back to the the comment you made about a gigantic trust. Uh, Real real quick, just clarify that uh, before you move on. Well, the idea, of course, they realized that... uh, you know, anytime you come up with a product and each person, each one of these wealthy billionaires has certain areas that they are focusing on, on, when competition comes, then they have to lower their prices to compete. Problem is, if you have a government, then you can eliminate competition. You can set up laws to not allow anybody to compete against you. And if you have a world government, you can establish whatever prices you have it goes against the free enterprise system, which uses the cheapest material and the best ways of doing things. And this is why you have a lot of innovation within a free enterprise system. You don't have that in the socialist system. There's no incentive. You're saying these governments, uh, in their very nat- collective nature, uh, form an interweb, a global interweb that's essentially a gigantic trust that is preventing innovation, preventing uh, free enterprise. That's what socialism is all about. Yes, the government controls everything, and therefore there is no inventive, uh, there is no incentive to invent things. This is why almost everything the Soviet Union has gotten, they've stolen from us as far as technology. In fact, they could not even get a missile to land in the, on this continent even though they could get it off the ground until we sent them the ball bearings made in Ohio and not only the, the, the precise, precision ball bearings that were necessary, but the machines that made them and the know-how to do it. We needed to get this uh, common enemy. That's why we sent Trotsky back with $20 million in gold to s- support the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks never would have been able to take over the landowners of that time had it not been for our support. Okay. All right. Question one, and and I'm not going to cover all of these, but uh, just take us through the, the the genesis of Agenda 21, where it came from and where it's going. I know it's a, it's a loaded question, but uh, if you could just cover that before we move on. A lot of people don't like using the term Agenda 21, but basically that's what they called it. It's a blueprint, an action plan to inventory and control all land, all water, all minerals, all plants, all animals, all construction, all means of production, all energy, all information, and all human beings in the world. It's a totally comprehensive plan, and data collection is a vital part of this plan. We've been in the inventory phase for a very long time. We're now moving into the control phase. We're now in transition period between government 
you know, our elected government and government by unelected boards and commissions, erasure of jurisdictional boundaries, loss of private property rights, loss of sovereignty and our freedom. We're losing sovereignty not only to our dirt, but to our person. This is concerned not only for the United States citizens, but for free human beings all over the world. Agenda 21 is the biggest public relations scam in the history of the world. It enables and justifies their using um, smart meters to monitor our use of electricity and gas, polarizing our roads and dams in rural areas, exhausting our military with endless wars, instituting a carbon tax on industry, and sinking our economy. They're diagnosing a huge portion of our population with mental illness and drugging us. They're not taking over our educational system through Common Core. They're bleeding our transportation systems with these high-cost trains like we have in California to nowhere. This is the idea of having transit communities. They're revamping our schools with sustainable development principles in every class from kindergarten to postgraduate school, and they're rethinking mathematics. It has nothing to do with mathematics. The idea is to slow them down. This is what No Child Left Behind was all about. They didn't want any child to get ahead because you can't make socialists out of individuals. You can only make them out of groups. So they're declaring our public lands off limits to humans and changing every land use document in the nation to require high-density housing and city centers to more easily control and surveil us. This is why we have this smart growth happening all over in California. Two ladies that I talked to last week actually shut down high-density housing in Huntington Beach, and they were showing us how to do it in... in uh, uh, Mountain Valley. So um, I'm having to speak at Orange County. I'm president of Orange County Eagle Forum, and I'm having to speak next month. They are allowing warrantless searches, identifying us as potentially enemy combatants, and targeting much of the Bible as hate speech. This is the end game. When I was debating the atheists on this, I said, you know, when you identify yourself as a homosexual, a lesbian, or an atheist, and we object to that, we're not objecting to you as a person. We can separate what you believe from who you are. We're not hating you. We're trying to show that that is not accurate. That's not true. That's not a good description of the way things are. And so we're only trying to point this out because we do care about you. But because they so identify with that position, to say anything against that position is considered hate speech. We're not hating them, but they can't separate themselves from what they call themselves. Now, okay. Now, David, moving along here, you mentioned Common Core, uh, which is the the collective government, global government-led educational arm uh, to, to train us all, to doc, uh, indoctrinate us all. Uh, but going forward to enforce all of this this uh, this tyranny, we have a global military dictatorship or apparatus that is led uh, from here in America, uh, powered and fueled by uh, uh, an economic system that's loaded with debt. How can they sustain a debt-based foundational economic system with all of the madness that's going around. It, it, I mean, people are, are, are waking up to this real, unreality of what what currently is going on in their economic system. How, how long can this, this go on without them being exposed? Well, um, it kind of goes along with the fact that if you have enough power, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If you can control every 
then it doesn't matter how much people know. Now, most people are asleep, and you are doing a good job of trying to expose this, and this is the way to fight it, is to first inform people. And when you have people understanding these things, like these two ladies did, once they were able to, and they used the social media, seems to be the way to reach people, especially under 40. And you can get them excited about something once they understand that these overzoning, um, uh, see, the, the ICLE, International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, doesn't mm-hmm. have any power in and of themselves. They're a United Nations organization, which actually existed before Agenda 21. And they actually wrote a chapter in the Agenda 21 uh, document. However, they are able to wine and dine those who do have the power, the political power, the mayor and the city council. Mm-hmm. And then they engineers are on board too because they can make a lot of money doing this. So they make this money. They're spending our tax dollars building these high-rise uh, condominiums and apartments which nobody wants to live in, but they're doing it and they want what we call transit centers so that you actually are condensing people into a small area which normally the population would be 45 people per acre. Now it's over 120 or 150 people. And that's that's what they're doing with this overlay of the zoning areas, they say, for a specific purpose. Well, that's their purpose. It's not anybody... There and they have these visioning meetings. I crashed a visioning meeting in Long Beach one time just by accident, and here they were doing exactly what I was. I, I thought they were going to do. I used to spend a lot of time with Dr. Stanley Monteith and recorded his last position, his last show uh, that he did in 2012. Uh, it's amazing. Once you see this happening, it's no longer theory now. You're seeing it happening all around you. So anyway, Common Core, which is the, you know, it's it's morphed out of outcome-based education. It's the same curriculum that was being taught way back in the Clinton's governor's school. And they're doing this. Now they're using... um, these teacher core, master teacher core, to make sure that the teachers stay on script. Before in No Child Left Behind, they had enough wiggle room so that the teachers could actually teach the students because they knew it worked. With Common Core, there's no wiggle room. Uh So how are they able to do this? Well, it has to do with... Is that a duck... So go ahead, go ahead. How they're doing this is they're conditioning people to believe that we have to sustain the sustain the environment, and we do this by giving up our freedoms. So they use uh, innocent-sounding words and phrases such as regionalism, consolidation, democracy, free trade, public-private partnerships, which is one of the most dangerous things. In fact, that was what happened in uh, 1998. This was the the um, Workforce Investment Act, which Kennedy said was the most important act passed that century. And what it was was placing the fourth, um, the, the fourth level of government, which is industry, 
industry was supposed to be a check and balance on the other three parts of our government. But when you linked industry with the government, now all of a sudden we have a a government that is controlled by industry. And that's not a good thing. So anyway, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're using the threat of environmentalism most of the time to try to scare people that this is we have to give up our freedoms. Yet only 5% of the United States is developed. You can place the entire world's population in half of Jacksonville, Florida. I drove through eastern half of Arkansas one evening without seeing any lights or life reforms of any kind. And I'm from Minnesota, and I've always been an advocate for global warming. I saw a license plate, Alaskans for global warming, the other day. But this is what they're using to try to believe, get people to believe. They're using the Marxist dialectic of finding or creating a problem and trying to come up with a solution which always involves giving up some of our rights. It's a stealth plan designed to hide in plain sight. Climate change, population, rising sea levels, collapse of the ozone layer, depletion of our forests, shrinking ozone layer, overpopulation, simply are myths. And Bjorn Lombard, an environmentalist, believed these myths that Al Gore and Lester Brown used in their criticism of civilization. However, he was challenged by the legitimacy of this by one of his students, and he decided to investigate it for himself, and he found the world's technical ingenuity exceeded most expectations. Food production continued to give more people cheaper food. The forests would not be lost. The world would not run out of energy, raw materials, or water. Atmospheric pollution had been reduced in the cities was being reduced all over the world, and the world's oceans had not been polluted. The rivers had become cleaner and supported more life, although the nutrient influx had increased in many coastal waters. This was more of a benefit than a problem. The total U.S. waste throughout the 21st century could be deposited in a single square landfill less than 18 miles on a side. Acid rain didn't kill off the forest. Species were not dying out, as they claimed, with the half of them disappearing over the next 50 years. The figure is more likely about 0.7%. The problem of the ozone layer, you know, is ridiculous. It, it, it's formed by the atmospheric sun hitting the sun hitting the atmosphere. And, of course, in the South Pole, it opens up because the sun's not hitting the atmosphere. And it shrinks every, every year. It just goes back down to where it was. The outlook of global warming is not a problem. In fact, there's good reason to believe that energy consumption is going to change because of renewable sources we've got day. So, in fact, it's just the opposite is true. Dr. Sherwood B. Eidsel, a research physicist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, suggested that far from hurting our planet, increased levels of CO2 will actually benefit the Earth. As atmosphere CO2 concentrations more than double, plant water use efficiencies more than double, and grasslands will flourish where deserts are right now. Shrubs will grow where only grasses grew before. And chemical worries, the fear of pesticides are misplaced and counterproductive. I got involved in this whole thing with the uh, DDT. Uh, you probably heard all about that. Yeah, I had, DDT was actually on the verge of winning the war against insects. You know, our farmers were so pr productive that less than 5% of the population is able to feed the other 95% and still have enough to feed half the industrialized world. 
We could theoretically feed an impoverished, developing third world countries, but they can't pay for the food and the internal transportation is now almost non-existent. The chief problem that keeps a nation from being able to feed itself apart from temporary internal problems such as wars are, what I mentioned before, insects. We compete for the same land, the same food, and the insect-borne diseases have wiped out millions of beings over the centuries. And we were winning the war, especially DDT, was on the verge of conquering the insect-borne diseases, but because of determined efforts of ecological extremists to eliminate the use of pesticides, many of these diseases, such as malaria, diphtheria, you know, made comebacks. In fact, dengue fever was the one that scares me the most. Exactly as they had warned 25 years ago, we're facing increased mosquito-borne diseases, West Nile and dengue, to name two. And dengue is transmitted through the to humans by the Aedes aegypti mosquito. And they threw during, uh, just yeah. wanted to get, get you back uh, to the biblical uh, connections to, to a lot of this stuff. And uh, and I will make a comment at the end, end uh, regarding, you know, all of us are really keenly interested in, in what in, individuals can do to, to activate, uh, you know, the spread propagation of good information, good research, and everything else. And there's a gathering of people in Paris as we speak, uh, really, really changing uh, the, the, the discussion that's going on in Paris about this end uh, end of the year uh, global climate treaty that they're trying to ramrod down people's throats. You're probably familiar with the climate treaty that could be signed at the end of this year. But yes, all I these global yeah, the Trans-Pacific Partnerships, the Global Climate Treaty. I mean, it just keeps coming and coming. But get back to the end times research and 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 help us connect some of these yes. uh, events and, and institutions to the to the uh, scriptural side of of, of this. Okay. Um, well, where where are we on the timeline? Maybe you could start right there. Well, there's there's two scriptures that actually tell us pretty much where we are. One is Isaiah 66, and the other is uh, uh, Hosea 5:14 through 6:2. Okay. Both of them indicate approximately when the rapture is going to take place. People ask me, are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, partial rapture theorist, or, you know, uh, what are you? And I say, well, yes, I am. I am a pre-trib, but there's also a mid-trib, and there's a post-trib. And um, you, you look at the scriptures carefully, and you can see this. So, so we have a pre-trib rapture, but there are 16 things that have to happen before the rapture takes place. And I go to the Dallas conference, prophecy conference down in Dallas. I was there this last December and talking to uh, Mark Hitchcock, who's probably one of the most most knowledgeable about prophecy experts they have. And I read his book, The End, and I said, you missed a few things, and we were talking about this. What we have, they they try to put a gap between the rapture and the tribulation. And the reason they do is because they realize that the battle of Gog and Magog has to occur before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the seven-year tribulation period. So what they're doing is they, but they can't get away with that because of Luke 17 and Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus goes through, discusses when these things, they ask him the question, when are these things going to take place? When, you know, when will your coming and what, what will be the signs of your coming? 
We can't look for his coming. We can look for his signs. But you can't have signs that haven't been fulfilled and imminence at the same time. This is the problem that they have. They want to hold on to eminency, which means Christ can come back at any moment. But yet they also believe that there are signs that have to be fulfilled because the scripture says that. So here is my scenario, and I got this a lot of this from Doc Beshore, but but I've gone through it with him in detail and you know back and forth, and I think this is pretty accurate. What you see in Isaiah 66, you see a passage where it talks about the man-child. The man-child is uh, uh, the uh, everybody, even Arnold Fruchtenbaum, would agree that that is Israel. And it says, "Can a nation be born in a day?" And so, well, we find that there were birth pains mentioned in Isaiah 66. The World War One would be the would was a birth pain. World War II was a birth pain. World War I prepared the land for Israel. World War II prepared Israel for the land. After Hitler killed 60 million Jews, I mean, half of the Jews on the popul- on the, in the world, 6 million Jews, they decided we better go back and protect ourselves. So they were now motivated, even though they prospered in almost every country they went, they felt they needed to come back to Israel. So they did. In 1948, May 14th, 1948, Israel was born. For about eight days, you had the Muslims trying to push them into the sea, trying to get rid of Israel before it ever got off the ground. And that's kind of like a mild circumcision. Then when Israel became 13, you that's the time when the United Nations, which was born in 1945, ended up saying that that Israel was a developed nation. That's also when they found Eichmann. I think it was in Argentina and had him hanged. Then when Israel became uh, eligible to be, when a boy, Israel Israeli boy turns 19, he's eligible to go to battle, and that's when Israel um, had the Six-Day War, 1967. Then you have Israel, when he gets to be 30, that's when he becomes eligible to become a rabbi, and a rabbi is considered to be a man of peace, and that's when they had the Camp David Accord and gave back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. So they became known as a nation of peace. And, of course, they established a, uh, a, a treaty with Egypt. Then when Israel continues along this line, if this man-child has the same lifespan, as it mentions in Psalm 90, verse 10, that a man's days will be three score and ten, and with strength four score, that all these things would be fulfilled, which would bring us up to the millennium. So you take the seven-year tribulation off of that, and you start with 1948, and you come up with the year 2021 to 2011. 2011 to 2021, that would be the time of the rapture, which would be the beginning of the tribulation. That's one scenario. The other scenario is in Hosea 5.14, where you have a picture of the, talks about, I will go away, the Messiah speaking for two days, and the third day I will return. So what happens? Well, if a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a, is a day, and you say that Jesus died and was crucified on A.D. 30, which almost all scholars would agree, then that would be 2030, take seven years, off of that, and you've got 2023. So that would be another scenario. And, of course, there's three actual 
probably fulfillments of that prophecy in Hosea 5.14. One is the idea that Jesus would be in the grave for two days and the third day he'd rise from the dead. The other interpretation of that, which probably all three of them are legitimate, is during the last three days of the tribulation, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, calls together a meeting and they call upon the Lord and they give, they read um, Isaiah 53 for the 22 rabbinical laws that they broke when they crucified Christ the first time. So those are just a couple of scenarios, but we also have a picture of this in Isaiah 61 as well. So it all points out to the fact that that why is the rapture and the tribulation have to occur at the same time? Well, the rapture, there, there can be no gap. The reason there can be no gap between the rapture and the tribulation, it talks about as in the days of Noah, when the day that Noah entered the ark, as as it was in the days of Lot, the day that Lot fled from Sodom, this the judgment came. So if that is a literal 24-hour day, which it was in both cases, then there is no gap. That would be David L. Cooper's position as well. And there's another reason, too, because it talks about two men being in the field. One is taken, the other is left to be in a bed. One will be taken, the other left. And they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. This is life as normal. What do the people who put a gap there have to put that at the end of the tribulation? But things at the end of the tribulation are not going to be as normal. They're going to be not only eating and drinking, they're not going to be marrying and giving in marriage, seven women clinging to one man. It's not life as normal. Building and planning, they're not going to be building and planning with the bowl judgments going on. Nothing's going to stand anyway. So it's not life as normal. But they have to put it at the end of the tribulation because they believe that there is a gap before the judgment. So, anyway, I don't know if I answered your question at all. David, uh, uh, give us a, a, a little, little sense as to how this, the technology, the flow of information is affecting, speeding things up right now. I mean, the, the way that uh, an incident in a church in South uh, Charleston, South Carolina, can immediately magnify a cause to bring down the flag in the South and, and this whole I mean, they can almost manufacture a a a, a storyline right now, propagated uh, uh, across all of these various platforms, and get people really revved up uh, in, in short order. It's almost like we were being manipulated uh, from uh, all of these things that have happened over the last uh, four to five, six years. Things that are questionable in the news that we can't really understand. If you go all the way back to 9/11, just a case of the point. So many questions that are still unanswered, and and, and a lot of these other, uh, you know, you call them false flag, you call them incidents, whatever you want to call them, but they they have questions around them that we can't really uh, answer. What's your take on all of this? Is this just another part of the end times? Uh, scenario where things are being orchestrated, governed behind the veil uh, to create a desired outcome? Explain uh, what you're saying again. I, I'm, I'm say, I was talking about the use of technology 
Um, we are things are being sped up so fast, and uh, you know the arc, uh, the, the storyline of a lot of these major global events when they are dissected with the technology by independent people, we are, we are uncovering quest, more questions than we can get answers regarding a lot of these things. It, 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 I mean, if you go all the way back to Pearl Harbor, for example, and, you know, the, 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 the conventional wisdom was, you know, <clears throat> Jap, the Japanese bombed us, and that's the reason why we got, got, got to war. But then we find out years later, you know, for example, JFK, uh, the storyline was Oswell, a lone gun, gunman, shot him down, but then years later, so many people have uncovered so many questions. Now, are you, because uh, really that's why this program, we do this every Thursday. There are a lot of these little programs all around the world. People are need need a, a platform to establish and, and create an agenda dialogue about these events. That's why we're having you on, on the call tonight. Uh, we don't believe in the controlled mainstream media. We, we, we believe in truth. We believe in justice. We believe in dialogue. And we believe in sharing the truth. Uh, but uh, my question to you is, uh, have you seen holes like we have seen in, in, in the media, in the, in the dissemination of information? Uh, are you more trusting of the the, the new anti media? I mean, this. I mean, from blogs to websites to. I know you're not really technologically. Uh, you and I were having problems texting each other, for example, and your email wasn't working. And but uh, there's this revolution of technology all around us right now that's really speeding up the flow of information. I was wondering how is that intersecting with uh, they're clashing with the end time scenario uh, that they could be unfolding here. I mean, it's almost like mankind can control things, David, Dr. Dr. Lehman, uh, almost in, in direct conflict with, with a scriptural unfolding of the end time scenario. So I, 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 I wouldn't put it past these people to think that they can actually uh, create uh, a false flag fear after fear after fear events in order to get their desired outcomes. Well, we just finished a book, Big Brother is Watching You, and it's through all the technology that they are, how they are tracking almost everything that can be, that's being done on Earth. Yeah. And they can get instant. In fact, that's one of the main purposes of Common Core is simply to uh, track get all the information from the students so that we know who they are. So you've got, I mean, we've got Abacus, the Pentagon, not simply not, is not content simply to watch enemies. It knows it has. It also wants to identify potential hostile behavior or intent in order to uncover clandestine foes. And so you've got this advisory behavior acquisition collection understanding and summarization. That's the Abacus tool which is able wow. to integrate data from informant tips, drone footage, captured phone calls, fly a human behavior modeling and simulation engine that would spit out intent-based threat assignments of individuals and groups. In other words, the software would potentially find out which people are most likely to harbor ill will towards U.S. military or its objectives. 
The enemy goes to great lengths to hide its activities, explained Modus Operandi Incorporated, which won an army contract to assembly uh, to assemble probabilistic algorithms that determine the likelihood of adversarial intent. Now this okay, is okay. Now, 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 now we're talking. Now we're talking. I, I, this is why I wanted you on this call. Let's talk about this, that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. DARPA, the you know, uh, heterogeneous aerial reconnaissance teams. And this is kind of what they're doing with Common Core. They're trying to control the behavior, and by they'll know you can't control somebody totally, but you can give them information so you can predict what they're most likely going to do. This is the Pavlovian type, Skinnerian type approach, and people are treated that way. So you've got things like heart operational architecture, you know, and this is really scary stuff. Wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about the big antenna up in Alaska, HARP? Or what are you saying? No, this is something H-A-R-T, operational architecture. And so it has uh, CMTs, DCGs. It's got uh, ISRIS. It's got just about every kind of, of uh, you know, heterogeneous aerial reconnaissance team. And this is developed by DARPA, have automated much of the aerial surveillance processes. They have developed systems consisting of large teams of drone planes pilot them, piloting themselves, automatically decide who is suspicious and how to go about monitoring them, coordinate their activities with other drones nearby and notify human operators if something suspicious is occurring. Of course, this greatly increases the amount of area that can be continuously monitored while reducing the number of human operators. Thus, a swarm of automated, self-directing drones can automatically patrol a city and track suspicious individuals reporting their activities back to a centralized monitoring station. And the Houston Police Department has been testing this unmanned aircraft since 2007. And, of course, uh, this has been going on for quite some time. News choppers had uh, uh, local two investigated team following the aircraft for more than an hour as it circled overhead. Its wings spanned 10 feet and circled in an attitude, altitude of 1,500 feet. So you can't really tell. You don't even know they're doing this. We've got all of these uh, UAVs and um, micro-air vehicles, which are developed by the Defense Advanced Research Program, the DARPA, and these they've got mosquitoes with cameras on them. Oh, I mean, mosquitoes, right? They fly outside your window. Called micromechanical flying insect, the MFI project. The goal of the micromechanical flying insect project is to develop 25 millimeter wingtip to wingtip device capable of sustained autonomous flight. The MFI is designed based on a biometric principle to capture some of the exceptional flight performance achieved by true flies. The high performance of true flies is based on large forces generated by non-steady state aerodynamics, a high power to weight ratio motor system, and a high speed control system that tightly integrate visual and in, uh, inertial sensors. So they've been working on this since 1998. They've got this pretty well developed now. They've got a nano hummingbird the aerial environment released a video of flight tests in its tiny nano hummingbird flapping wing UAV, and this is back in 2011 of February, 
built under DARPA's Nano Air Vehicle NAV program. The vehicle, like a real hummingbird, hovers, maneuvers, flies under its own power, uses flapping wings for propulsion and control. You know, and the United Kingdom launched in 2007 to provide 43 police departments with UAVs. The Home Office will fund the project. In other words, you've got hundreds of satellites, undisclosed numbers of military surveillance aircraft, dozens of different types of UAVs and MAVs, and other surveillance craft we're not even aware of. So, I don't want to get you off the subject, but please don't get distracted here, but many of us on this call have looked up in the sky for years and we kind of question what is going on above us. Uh, and uh, we're wondering, could they be uh, ionizing or creating some kind of a plasma a shield or, or element in our skies to even transmit, transfer uh, some of these electromagnetic communications in order to create another uh, grid on top of what they're already doing flying these little insects and drones. So, what I'm trying to say is that they they seem to be spraying things in the skies that look extremely unusual, uh, and uh, the respiratory illnesses are off the charts, are exploding all over the world. Uh, Even though people, far more fewer people are smoking compared to 10, 20 years ago, and uh, the level of alumina, barium, and strontium in our in our natural, uh, you know, it's just. you know, water and things that are the measures are, are off the charts. They just they're showing up. And yeah, they did a study. <laughs> they did a study with whale blubber, and they found that the aluminum content was two thousand times what it was, you know, a few years ago. So oh apparently God. there is okay. something to. And of course, aluminum is not something we want. Two thousand uh, times in whale blubber than it should be, or, or it was. It was the, the, the aluminum content of the whale blubber, I believe it was 2,000 times the amount that it had been previous to that. And, of course, they believe that that is what is happening in the um, these chemtrails. The contrails, actually, the, 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 the gas, the, uh, the, the engine, but the chemtrail is actually something that's being let out of the airplanes supposedly to to yeah. control global warming, in other words. And uh, that's what the pilots are being told. However, with the HARP program, apparently it can cause it to have damage on crops that aren't chemically uh, designed to resist it, which um, we, we feel that their Monsanto has chemically designed, has their own crops, which are not affected by this. However, they're trying to gain a monopoly on the crops. Now, this is what I've been told. I haven't been able to verify that. Okay. Well, well, anyway, a little little tidbit of uh, information, these five or six activists that uh, we all volunteers to to fund their trip to Paris. Uh, They're well-dressed, well-researched, and they passed out five to six hundred papers uh, in, uh, at the conference the first two days, and there was supposed to be a discussion of geoengineering at this keynote conference. And but the papers had already been passed out, and 
nothing was said about geoengineering in the section that they were supposed to be discussing and highlighting that. And that's just an example uh, here of six activists passing out well-researched papers about what is really happening change the whole dynamic of the discussion at this conference in Paris, David, uh, which wow. is a, a really, really good, good sign of, of, of what you're saying, you know, just sharing the truth uh, with others. Yeah. Well, the thing that is pretty scary about the whole thing is that once the United States becomes part of the New World Order, it's not going to be able to succeed. The New World Order is forever the ultimate move to strengthen the UN, to give it a monopoly on military power. And, of course, you're familiar with the Freedom From War, that that document. 1961? Or it was... It was State was Department, 7277, called, called yeah. for transferring control of U.S. nuclear weapons to the United Nations, restricting American military to the role of internal yeah. police force and establishing an all-powerful UN army. And, of course, once we do this, uh, there is no turning back. But that's the strategy. That's the plan. <clears throat> okay, now get us back to the timeline. Where are we on the timeline to conceding or, or simply disappearing into the new world order? Or is there anything left before we well, fall into the chasm? Okay, from a biblical perspective, we have the first thing on the on the chart is going to be the Battle of Gog and Magog. And that's when nations surrounding Israel, this is Ezekiel 38 and 39, surrounding Israel are going to attack Israel, and that's primarily led by Iran, but Russia is involved, Germany, Turkey, and all the Muslim nations will be attacking Israel. And, of course, God intervenes and destroys the Islamic presence from the world. After that takes place, and that could happen any time. In fact, uh, you, you, you heard that just today, I think it was, the Sanhedrin uh, is suing the Pope because he's restricting them from <laughs> the Jews from their own land. So, anyway, that just came out today. And I haven't gotten into the details of it, but basically there's everything is heating up very quickly and the Jews will have to attack Iran before they have a weapon because as soon as they have a weapon, it's going to be aimed at Israel. Uh, it, and, Fred, can, I, can I ask a question? This is Steve. Uh, gentlemen, it, Dr. Lehman, you were saying the Jews restricted from their land. Could, could you define that? Because if I'm not mistaken... They're in Palestine. That was land that was granted to them, and uh, Palestine is basically an open-air prison. That's where the Palestinians live, but how do you define they're restricted from their land? Um, the Sanhedrin has sued the Pope because the Pope made a statement, and I, I didn't get that firsthand. I got that from somebody else, and I because I just moved, I am... I am without information, so I'm depending on other people to kind of help me here for a couple of days. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm not sure uh, exactly what he said, but you might want to Google that and find out exactly uh, what was said. But it says he's, that because 
It's it's on Wikipedia. Uh, the Sanhedrin is suing the Pope because he was restricting them from I don't know exactly the Temple Mount or some area that uh, that they believe they have a right to. But I'm just saying that what's going to happen now, and that's all I know, is that. Israel is going to have to attack Iran. And the reason why you have to attack Iran is because in most communist countries, they want to stay in power. So North Korea, they can have a weapon, but they're not going to use that weapon because they would be annihilated. But Iran doesn't care because Islam teaches that the world has to come be on fire before the hidden Amman, the Mahdi, can come. And, of course, if they die, they get 70 beautiful brown-eyed virgins, Huries, and each one has 70 attendants. And so they're looking forward to dying. So you don't have the mutually uh, assured destruction doesn't work with a Muslim country like Iran, whereas in every other communist country, um, it would. So once they get the weapon, they're going to attack Israel. Israel knows that they have to attack first. That could happen anytime. Once that happens, it's equal 39, and I had this debate with Bill Salas. He wrote Israelistine, and we were debating on the radio one time, and he liked the debate so well. He thought he did well. I didn't think he did, but he's making copies of it. But basically, he says there's two battles. One is Psalm 83, and the other is Ezekiel 38. So they found this Bible open to Psalm 83 somewhere in Scotland, and then they said that must be a sign from God. Well, if you read Psalm 83, it's nothing but an imprecatory prayer, praying for the protection of Israel from its enemies, whereas, and whereas it's not a battle. It's not, it, it describes some battles, but it doesn't really, it's not talking about a battle, whereas Ezekiel 38 is the fulfillment of that promise in Psalm 83. So there's no not two battles. And I said this to Bill Salas on the radio. I said, so what happens if Israel captures all those countries that you say they're going to capture? Um, what are they going to do with them? It's kind of like a dog chasing a bus. What's going to, what is he going to do if he ever catches it? I mean, they can't even control the West Bank. How are they going to control half the Muslim world? But anyway, uh, the he didn't have an answer for that. What, what you have is Ezekiel 38 is going to happen, and then right after that, the destruction of the Islamic presence from the world, including the, the, apparently the distant isles where Muslims are in a strategic as well. Then after that, you have a one-world government is set up. Then that government breaks into ten pieces, ten parts. Then the Antichrist reveals himself, signs a covenant with Israel, Israel talks about this uh, in Joel 2.30 where it talks about we made a covenant with death. In other words, they knew that they had done this, but they needed to do this because of the overflowing scourge. The overflowing scourge are these demonic hosts that are attacking certain countries, and in this particular case it would be Israel had they not signed this covenant with the Antichrist who somehow has control over this overflowing scourge during the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years later, all of a sudden he breaks his treaty, chases Israel to Petra. Pet Israel hides there for the last three and a half years during the tribulation. But at that 
time when Israel signs a covenant with the Antichrist, that apparently that day is also the day of the rapture. That's the scenario that I see. And we are, Dr. Lehman, is, 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 are, are, could there be a, a, another interpretation of the Antichrist, the institutional in nature? It, it, could there be a possible dotted line to the United Nations or the apparatus of the global government being the manifestation of that entity? Or no. uh, am I way off track there? No. I, I, you can interpret things, but you, you have to look at it as a person. The Antichrist is a person. Now, there are many Antichrists, as it says in First um, John. There are many Antichrists in the world today. But the word anti is actually means taking the place of. And the Pope is considered to be the vicar of Christ. So he is taking the place of Christ. That's why many people like John Huss believe the Pope would be the Antichrist. And in a sense, he is an Antichrist in the sense that he's taking the place of Christ today. But it's just interesting that this particular pope has also signed on to global warming and practically done everything that a one-worlder would actually probably do. There's a transformation in the Catholic Church today to become that very one world church described in Revelation 17 and 18 that John Huss and some of the early reformers were talking about. And that's why you had this Jesuit priest, Alcazar, in 1700s issue the proclamation that it was passed. The whole book of Revelation has already taken place. This is why many of the Presbyterians who didn't go far enough away from what the Catholic Church taught actually hold to that preterist position that the book of Revelation is all past. This would make Nero the Antichrist. And, of course, we debated this question with the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff, in Dallas Prophecy, at the Prophecy Conference in Dallas, and that was Mark Hitchcock. And I was sitting up in the front row with John Ankerberg during the debate, and I asked Mark after the debate, I said, what do you think? And he said he didn't say anything to support his position or anything against mine. One of Mark's positions was it couldn't have been. I mean, I've got about 50 reasons why <laughs> the preterist position doesn't work. But that's why they had to take that position was simply because they were trying to eliminate themselves as being the picture of the one world church. Uh, uh, Dr. Lehman, I have two questions. Number one. Now, most of the Jews, so-called Jews in Israel and in the world, are not really Jews, they're Khazars. And their DNA is, is not Semitic, you know. They're not descendants of Abraham. Well, I discussed this with the head of the genetics department at the Institute for Creation Research. And he has sent me a bunch of papers written by Jewish scholars. These are biogeneticists. And what they did, they found, you know, you've got to go back and 80% of the Jews today are... Ashkenazi. Now, Ashkenaz was actually a son of Japheth. The you know, so we we he he wouldn't even be in the Abrahamic line. But what that what we found out was actually the northern tribes. Some of them went over the Caucasus Mountains and settled there in the in the uh, the um, whatever that is 
they moved to Ashkenaz from there. And then we had the Sephardic Jews, which left basically when um, Columbus, 1492, they were, they were given a month to leave their homes or convert to Catholicism. And so they fled, and they also ended up in Ashkenaz. So the Jews, and it says in Jeremiah, that they actually would marry with their, their brothers and sisters. Apparently, that did happen. And these geneticists say, there's a lot of people say the Ashkenazi are not true Jews, but in reality, they are true Jews. That is their, um, you know, you don't have Abraham's recombinant DNA and Y chromosome to compare it. So these people not only had to be excellent geneticists, they had to be um, scholars of migration patterns where they could find the highest concentration and then compare the Y chromosome and recombinant DNA, which do not change. And they found that these are Ashkenazis, like Albert Einstein, they are true Jews. That's their their their, their conclusion. So the Jews living in Israel today are true Jews, most of them. Now, to me, the Semitic would be uh, brown eyes, dark skin, you know, black hair. Now the uh, the Arabs are Semitic too, correct? Uh, they're both uh, descendants of Shem, yes. Yeah, they're descendants from um, Hagar, Abraham Hagar. That is, I, I understand the Arabs descend from Hagar, and well, the, uh, descend from uh, uh, Ishmael. Was it Ishmael? I don't. Abraham. Yeah, Ish. No, from Ish, Sarah, Sarah. From Sarah. They're descended from Sarah. Yeah, Ishmael. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were several lines uh what we call Arabs, most of them speak Arabic, and they're not all from she had several um there were several lines that came from that that would be also considered uh Arabs. Yeah. But uh Iranians are not Arabs. No, what about where does Russia fit in here? You know, uh, now Russia's a Christian nation now, you know. And uh so how do they fit in here? It seems like the West NATO and everyone's ganging up on Russia. You know. Well, and all, all of Ukraine, the United States overthrew the elected government Yanukovych in Ukraine, and now they're sending troops or military equipment into Ukraine and uh, there's a battle going on between Christians against Christians in uh, Ukraine, you know, the West against the West Ukraine against Eastern Ukraine and so forth. So, yes, there's a lot of Christians in the Ukraine. I, I was at several churches in the Ukraine. I used to smuggle Bibles into Russia and as a long time ago. But I also um, am aware of the Christian churches in the Ukraine. However, Russia is considered, all the Russian pastors will admit this, that Gog, Magog, is basically Moscow. And they they admit that, that this, that God is going to put a hook in their mouth, and most likely that would be uh, Putin, and they will come and attack Russia. And they will come attack Israel. And that's why we are working really hard to get the gospel into all the schools in Russia through World Bible Society and trying to get these kids before this happens. 
Well, they wouldn't even have to attack Russia. All they could do is send a couple inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles right into Russia, I mean, to uh, Israel and wipe them off the map. Israel has a pretty good defense system. Yeah, but I think, uh, yeah, but as far as I, as far when I've been reading, uh, uh, United, uh, Russia has pretty good missiles that cannot be uh, detected. I've been reading that lately, too. Well, the for some reason, and I, I agree with you, there it, that would seem to be the logical thing. But for some reason, um, they come down to Israel. Now, there are figures of speech in the Bible where um, the, uh, one thing is used to describe something else that is different. So they're talking about... Uh, um, the the weapons of that day they're using those terms because there was no term for the weapons of our day Matonim, I can't remember the figure of speech that that's used they used throughout scripture and so we can't really define ex- you know what those weapons are and transform transport that into today's weapons we can guess at what those are but we probably don't have a clear picture of those but it's describing that they do attack Israel but before they actually get to do that God destroys not only the armies but the nations those armies were sent from which leaves a vacuum the Islamic presence in other words the Antichrist today because of the power of Islam would have to be Islamic but because of Ezekiel 38 and 39, there won't be an Islamic presence, or at least power. There might not going to be every Muslim in the world is not going to be killed, most likely, but they will. the power will be gone in their presence. So now it leaves the vacuum open for the Catholic Church, and it talks about something interesting, that the, that the woman is flying to Shinar. Well, Shinar is Babylon. And Chuck Missler made an interesting comment. He says, you know, it's it's interesting that the Pope, the Catholic Church is buying all this land around Babylon, the ancient site of Babylon. And if Peter's bones are in Babylon... Wait, 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 where is the ancient site of Babylon, David? Well, Babylon is 57 miles south of Baghdad. Okay, got it, got it, okay. And so that's what what the Bible calls Shinar. And that's where everything started, you know, at the Tower of Babel, all the nations. They now, wait left. a minute. You're, you're saying it's confirmed the Catholic Church is buying up land down there? That's what he said. And, of course, we have one of the largest. Uh, and I have all of his. He downloaded his entire PowerPoint presentation onto my, my laptop, which I still have yeah. here. Okay. Anyway, that was his, his what he was saying. And Wow. I've heard other sources say the same thing, but again, I haven't had a chance to confirm that totally. But basically, if that's true, and then this is the scenario, because every church has to have a relic. A relic is a bone of a saint. And they've been looking for Peter's bones, and they've not found them. Greta Garducci was somebody who was, you know, involved in this, and they finally just closed the whole thing because the bones of Peter that they found were actually bones of a woman. It wasn't any, no identification whatsoever. 
But Peter wrote from Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13, one of the last things he wrote, and he says, the saints of Babylon greet you, and so does my son John Mark. Well, that's where Peter most likely died, and that's most likely where they're going to find Peter's bones. If wow. that's true, that means that the Catholic Church will move the sea to Babylon, and then you don't have an ecclesiastical Babylon and a political Babylon. You have both in the same place. And it does talk about the harlot flying to Shinar. And so if that is true, that would be the Babylon, the harlot, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, moving Jeez. to Babylon. And the reason we know, I mean, it was chances are that Peter was never even in Rome. And the reason we know that is because Paul's writing in chapter 16, he's mentioning all the saints that, that you know, every person, all that chapter is, is a listing of all the people that are there in, in Rome, and Peter's not mentioned. Plus, who was his son, John Mark? That was the author of the Gospel of Mark, because that was his biological son, because it uses the word huios instead of when he talks, Paul talks about his child in the faith, he uses the word technon, which means child. So, and most likely, John Mark, because he, he wrote the Gospel of Mark, which everybody says was Peter's Gospel, because he traveled with Peter, and when Peter got out of prison, where did he go? He went to the house of Mary, who was the mother of John Mark. So he went home, which is where they were praying for him, which makes sense. Anyway... Just a side note. So it looks like that's what this the scenario will be. I don't, you know, can't confirm it, but that's the best that yeah. I can come up with. Now, uh, Dr. Lehman, now, number one, the Babylonians have, have been fleeing. Uh, Christians have been fleeing Babylon now because they've been persecuted, so they've been True. forced out. But uh, just, yeah. number two, is the, the Jews, uh, they deny Christ as the Messiah. Correct. Uh, now, the Bible says there's a remnant that will be saved, but uh, what do you say about this? Did you deny, deny Christ as being the Messiah? Well, they they won't even use the word uh, Jesus. You know, they right. hate Jesus. I mean, I, uh, I uh, wrote a syllabus. I, I used to debate Jews, and uh, I was, uh, I found that Mark L. Uh, Mark L. Brown was uh, he he wrote five books uh, against the anti missionaries who are the those are the leaders of the Jewish Jewish scholars who are um, debating him against of course Jesus. But uh, I used I, I condensed all five of his books into my syllabus on Judaism, and I, I found they were quite good. He, he he did a really good job of it. So the Jews were sending Jewish scriptures to Jews all all the Jews in the United States. We're going to try and send them throughout the world. This is World Bible Society. But uh, anyway, uh, just to give you an example. Um, I've got a couple of things I would like to share here. But one is that Jews don't believe in Jesus, which is what you were saying. Yeah. That's a general objection. So I'm a, I'm a Jew, so I can't believe in Jesus. But his answer to that is, 
Yeshua was born a Jew, raised in a Jewish community, lived and worked as a Jew among Jews, worshipped at the temple as a faithful Jew, attended synagogue regularly, taught as a Jew, ultimately died as a Jew with Hebrew scriptures on his lips. He spent almost his entire life in constant interaction with fellow Jews and all his immediate followers were Jewish. He was welcomed by many of his Jewish contemporaries as a promised Messiah. He pointed to the words of the Israelite prophets to explain his mission. He spent virtually all of his time with few special, few exceptions, preaching to Jews, healing their sicknesses, meeting their deep spiritual and emotional needs. Out of the countless thousands of people whose lives he directly touched, few of them were non-Jews. When reports circulated that he had risen from the dead, Jewish women were the first eyewitnesses, and Jewish men were announced the good news this good news to crowds of interested religious Jews. It was Jews who told other Jews about his resurrection and Jews who healed other Jews in his name. Of the large numbers of those who first put his faith in him, all of them were Jews. In fact, it wasn't until several years later that any Gentiles became part of this community of believers. And once you find that, it says in the Bible, many of the, uh, the um, believers, uh, the leaders of the Jews believed on him. Uh, it was a pretty high percentage, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the four, four Gospels, three of them were written by Jews. Uh, Luke's uh, was a Greek. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They, so the Jews, well, Paul was a Jew, and he, he went to the Gentiles. Yeah, I have this ongoing debate with uh, John John Hagee, who's become a, you know, he believes that Jews don't need Jesus. <laughs> But Paul uh, yeah. did. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but he, they don't even allow the missionaries preaching in Israel now. You know, they're, as I understand. Yeah, the there's missionaries. a... Well, yeah, there's a lot. I talked to David... Uh, um, David Levy, and he was over there. He worked with Friends of Israel. He says you got two kinds of Jews over there, Christian Jews. One are the Messianic groups, and the other are the Plymouth Brethren types that have totally diverse, divorced themselves from Judaism because they felt that Judaism was leading them in the wrong direction. The Messianic Jews are trying to keep the most of the Jewish traditions together as much as possible and still hold to the, to the deity of Christ. But he feels that's dangerous because when you hold to too many of those traditions, you end up denying Christ. At least that's what he thinks. Yeah. Hey, but Sam, yeah. I'm going to just uh, uh, let David try to conclude, uh, and then we can open up for, for comments and questions for other people. Uh, David, uh, just to kind of wrap things up here, and then uh, we're going to open it up for comments and questions. Could you just uh, kind of put a bow tie on what you've presented tonight in, in a in a in a condensed way, your email is on the website uh, on our newsletter. People would like to email you. Feel free uh, to email Dr. Neiman uh, for any further inquiry. Uh, is there any uh, uh, thing that we should be looking at in terms of um, uh, of, of probing scriptural research? Uh, you mentioned a lot of these names uh, on the call tonight, but if there's one out of the hat that we could uh, kind of really shine the light on, what, what would that be uh, to, to learn more about your work? <clears throat> well, I, I would, uh, there, there are just so many areas. For example, I, I wanted to say something before, and I didn't say it about, you were asking about prophecy. 
most of the people that are talking about prophecy are talking about the return of Christ. In fact, that's almost all of prophecy. That's what it's dealing with. That's the subject. Okay. When is it yep. going to return? Now, there's four views to the book of Revelation. And the first one was the preterist view, which says it's past. The second one is the historicist view, which says that it's been happening all the way through history. The problem with that is you have as many historicist views as you have historicists to come up with them because they're trying to somehow see history fulfilled in this chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation, which it can't do. It's in the tribulation. Then the third one is the allegorical version, and that's the one where they try to say, well, it means that God, Christ is going to win in the end, and it doesn't really matter. It's just an allegory, just trying to show that good, you know, good, they don't try to really interpret it. And uh, then the, the last one is the futurist view, which is what I hold to, that believes the entire book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19 is actually talking about a future seven-year period. Now, just let me answer one thing. The preterist view, which came up by this Alcazar, who was a Jesuit priest, trying to defend the Catholic Church, this is what he has to deal with. These are questions that he must answer. Can the preterist produce even one sign that Jesus came back before A.D. 70 has been in charge of the world ever since? How do they prove Satan was bound for a thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3, in an evil world rampant with drugs, rape, and murder? Can anyone even suggest for the last 1,900 years Christ has been ruling as King of Kings when over 50 million martyrs have been slaughtered for their faith? How do prayers explain that none of the events of the end of the age have ever happened, including the cataclysmic events that are supposed to take place in the heavens? The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars fall from the sky, the powers of heavens be shaken. The Son of Man will be seen coming on the clouds of sky with, uh, with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. What evidence can preterists marshal to show that Christ has been in charge of a world that has known 15,000 wars with millions dead when during the millennium the only people who will die, according to Isaiah 65, will be sinners? And I could go on. What evidence do preterists have the tragic siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 was the fulfillment of the Great Tribulation? He said it would be a time that was worse than any other time in history from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, Matthew 24, 21. What about the Inquisition, Hitler's Holocaust? How can preterists possibly prove that Nero was the Antichrist? He was never in Jerusalem. He didn't desecrate the temple, nor was he destroyed by the breath of Christ's mouth at the appearance of his coming, as Paul promised in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Actually, he was more of a, interested in poetry and died a suicide at 31. He doesn't even come close to being a king of fierce countenance. So, how can preterists prove the historical evidence of 21 judgments when included the turning of water into blood, three earthquakes during the largest earthquake in the history of the world, Revelation 16:18, a world war that wipes out 25% of the Earth's population, three plagues that wipe out another third of the remaining population. Revelation 9.18, the Antichrist demands to be worshipped and is taking the mark or being guillotined to death according to seven occurred during the middle of the tribulation. So, anyway, those are just some of the things, and there is no other way to interpret the book of Revelation. It has to be future. It has to be seven years, just like the Bible says it is. Um, so, if I were to summarize everything, I think you, you need to look at what's happening in the world. You need to look at what is going to take place on the earth, and we, you guys are probably as knowledgeable as anybody on what's happening in the world. I think what you need to do is to be able to 
go through and see how these are being fulfilled in Scripture. And that's that's what people are interested in, I think. So you've got things that, warning signs that are being fulfilled, the falling away, that's in 2 Thessalonians 2. This apostasy is unbelievable. I, I used to think the falling away was happening all the way through in the New Testament even, but not like we're seeing today. The second thing is the increase in travel and knowledge, which it says in Daniel 12.4. Well, knowledge is because we're seeing these things happen. Um, and, of course, knowledge is increasing, what, in every so many years. Now it's doubling. The rise of anti-Semitism, Psalm 83. The mark of the beast technology, as we're seeing in Revelation 13. Israel's dwelling securely. Now, the word betak means she has secure borders. That's Ezekiel 38.8. And she does have secure borders. Even though they're shooting missiles over those borders, they are secure. And then the next, so you've got, those are the things that have happened. And, of course, you could go in, into each one of those. I could go into a, in a lot of detail. But then you've got the things that are about to, yet to be fulfilled. One is the destruction of Russia, Islam, and Egypt. That's Ezekiel 38, 39. The first stage of the conversion of Israel and the Gentiles, that's Ezekiel 39.7. As soon as you see these things happen and Israel sees what God is doing, many of the Jews get converted. And then there's the rebuilding of the ancient city of Babylon, that's Zechariah 5. The world church and the rise of the false prophet, that's, you see, Revelation 17. Um, You see uh, the world economy, Revelation 13, world government. These are things... The world breaks into ten divisions, rebuilding of the temple, the rise of the Antichrist, the overflowing scourge in Joel 2, and, of course, the time of peace and safety, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. These are the things that are going to take place, that have not taken place yet. So, Dave, uh, Dr. Lima, I mean, it's, it sounds like we are right in, this, in the thick of a lot, a lot of this. If you're, your numbers... Uh, pointed to from 2011 to 2023 or, or I mean, we're right in the middle of this process or could, uh, well, that would be the, that would, that's what I'm saying. It would not be any later than that. It could be sooner. Could be sooner. Okay. Yeah. But I suspect now this is the thing I, I debate doc on this one or occasionally, but it's that they're going to burn the weapons for seven years. So if they burn the weapons for seven years... Wait, wait, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, after the nations attack Israel, then they end up burning the weapons for seven years. And this is in Ezekiel 39. So if they're burning these weapons, and whatever that means, um, Chuck Missler thinks they're using nuclear fuel during that time, but I suspect that it's just burning weapons. Whatever that, whatever that means, then they probably won't be burning them in the last half of the tribulation because they won't be there in the cities of Israel to burn them because it talks about them burning them in the cities of Israel. So they're going to be fleeing to Petra. So that means that that, that war Where is would Petra. Where is Petra? In Jordan. Huh? It's south. 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 Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, just a little bit southeast. 
of Israel. Yeah. Okay. So they're going to be fleeing there, and there is a place in Petra which is pretty hard to, you know, you, you really can't penetrate it because it's... Uh, There's a, a certain, it used to be you could only get a horse in there. Now they've widened it. I think you can actually drive in there. But it's pretty a solid fortress. And there were a lot of people that were leaving Bible tracts and food and various other things in there because they thought this was going to happen. You know, special wow. kinds of foods that... that um, Last that, forever. <laughs> for, yeah, that last for a long time. But yeah. um, apparently the, the scriptures were burned um, because they for some reason. Uh, I think the Muslims did that. Okay. But uh, anyway, so w- what I'm saying is that the battle of Gog and Magog could probably occur tomorrow. But wow. that would be three and a half years before the rapture. Now, if they were to bring that food with them to Petra, or those weapons with them, then then the rapture and the tribulation and the uh, and the uh, you know, the battle of God and Magog could happen very, very quickly uh, after the battle. But I suspect that what's going to happen is we are going to see a one-world government. We are going to see the one-world government break into ten pieces, and we're going to see the Antichrist before the rapture. And it's still a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, you have a mid-tribulational rapture of the two witnesses. They're brought up in the middle of the tribulation. But then you also have an end at the end of the tribulation, you have another rapture. And that's Matthew 25, 30, 24, 31, where it says his angels gather the elect from the four corners of the earth and the four winds of heaven. So even Henry Morris in his study Bible agrees that that is a rapture. So if that is a rapture, then what about the people populating the millennium? I mean, who's going to be left of the good guys to populate the millennium? Because none, none of the evil people, none of the unsaved are going to be there. There will be unsaved being born because they still have to get saved even though they're born during the millennium. But who's going to be left to populate the millennium? And that you go back to Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33 talks about them, God hiding them during the purging of the earth by fire at the end of the tribulation. And he hides them in the munitions of the rocks. And these are like the Corneliuses of Acts 10 who basically have been, you know, Cornelius, he was fasting and praying but he wasn't a Christian yet. And then Peter came to him and shared the gospel, and he became saved and basically had the same experience they had at Pentecost eight years previous to that. What happened to these Cornelius is they get saved, and you have that picture is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. They're asked the question, the, the judgment of the sheep and goat nations. They're asked the question, when did we see thee sick and come and visit thee or help thee? When did we see thee naked and clothe thee? When did we see thee? As you've done it to these, the least of my brethren, so you've done it unto me. If they were Christians, they probably wouldn't have had to ask that question. But these people, these godly people who don't take the mark, but somehow they survive and they were doing, helping the Jews, the elect. But probably that would include believers because Jesus said, who is my brother and sister, you know, my brother and but him that does the will of my father. So there could be believers on both Jews and Christians. But anyway, these people are converted and then go on into the millennium. And then the Jews, during the last three days of the tribulation, call upon Jesus, and he allows them to get saved, and they go on in to populate the millennium as well. 
Dr. Lehman. Uh, yes, sir. I was just going back over the notes real quickly. I've been noting this is Steve with AU Network, but uh, I was very quickly going to ask you your opinion on something. Um, you're saying that Israel should attack Iran before Iran attacks Israel. And my question to you, sir, uh, in your expertise and your belief in God, uh, where is the guidance, guidance that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is receiving? Would you say it's from the God of Abraham, or would you say Netanyahu's receiving his uh, guidance from uh, the Antichrist? Well, I just happened to, I have a picture of Doc Bishore, the guy that I work with, and um, he's president of World Bible Society. I've got a picture of him and Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's holding one of these Jewish scriptures that God is, that uh, Doc is sending to every Jew in America. We've got a mailing list. We know where every Jewish home in America is. And what it is is showing the uh, rabbinical literature how Jesus, the only one it could be, is the Messiah. And he's, it's only using Jewish sources. And even the, the rabbinical material makes it very clear. Benjamin Nehiyahu is a very good man. He is, he is about as close to being a Christian as you can imagine. In oh, fact, some crap. of the, some of us believe that he actually is a Christian and isn't saying so, so. So obviously Zionism is a very good cause, and you support that as well. Well, there's two kinds of Zionism, but yeah, um, I, I believe that the, the 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 Jews are back in Israel, and that God is definitely uh, there. Is that as you've done it to these at least. The idea is that um, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. There are, uh, in fact, I have a, done a study. There's another guy that wrote a book on this who looked at every time that the United States had said done something against Israel, that that person who was signing the agreement to land for peace somehow was... Um, there, there was something tragic happened to them or their house or something, and so I think it was uh, it was Clinton. Just to remember one of them, where right after he uh, signed this uh, agreement to land for peace, that that was when uh, his uh, his affair was broken the very next day. Uh, so. Then then all the things that Netanyahu is behind of trying to take all of the Palestinians out of the Palestinians' land, you agree with that? Well, I think you've got to look at the news sources. What Israel has done in most cases is trying to support the Palestinians to try to help them. But when you have Palestinians digging tunnels over there towards your schools, to kill all your children because the Islamic people, they believe by killing the innocents, you do more harm to the people than if you kill them themselves. But there's so a they, lot of Christians there. There's a lot of Palestinians that's Christians. Well, they're not all is, uh, Islamic. No, no, I know, but they will hide behind the, they will hide in the homes. They, the, the, I think it's the only, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I know in general 
the only way that you can protect your his country is to you know you, you can't separate every one of them so i think he's probably just trying to um give himself some uh freedom where he he's not killing them he is simply trying to help them to you know he wants to get people out of there so that they're out of harm's way to some degree Dr. Lehman, we we are in general uh, on this on this call uh, very. Uh, we've been questioning the, the the apartheid policy of Israel against the Palestinian people for for many years, and uh, it's unfortunate that there's so much uh, segregation and and violence and on 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 those people, and uh, their land is land is being taken away. They're they're. Uh, being being forced out and, and there's 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 a military occupation basically is is what Israel is right now uh, or at least the Palestinians the territories uh, are being occupied militarily and uh, I know it's a tough situation it's uh, but uh, we and the and the other thing is we definitely think on, on that the uh, Israeli influence over our governmental uh, the lobbyists uh, it has been undue and very, very, very powerful. And uh, uh, so, but the course of history is the course of history. It's 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 weaving its web, and uh, you know we're all gonna, we're all part of this. But uh, we're there is more, thing. The, the warmongering that seems to be going behind the drum behind. Uh, all of these, all of these corners is, is very unfortunate. It's almost like we're constantly uh, being asked to send our troops overseas to occupy foreign countries, invading foreign countries, and it's and it's usually at the behest of another another uh, cause, which is to we're we're doing a lot of the dirty work for this global entity that that's supporting, uh, unfortunately, the uh, occupation of, of of that area of the country. Well, Palestine was always, I mean, in fact, that was a, it was a Philistine, it was originally what it was called. It was Israel's enemies. The Palestinian uh-huh. army was all Israeli. This idea of, of, of people who lived there, I mean, these people were not um, Arabs, they were Jews in Palestine. And the Palestinians there was never the Palestinian orchestra was Jewish orchestra. This whole uh, thing about these Palestinians, they, a lot of them are, are ploys that, that they, they try to use as a picture of Israel has had housing developments and the United Nations would not allow them to give those housing developments to the people. They have prospered because of Israel's economy so much so. I mean, they're the ones that benefit. Uh, Israel is not hard on Palestinians. In fact, Israel's probably the, 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 the more generous to the Palestinians than, than any news media that I know of has really portrayed them as. But it's, it's basically bad propaganda as far as I can say. David Hunt did a really good job with that in his video and his 
at describing the true nature of what the Palestinians have gone. Well, you you remember that poor young woman who stood up to the bulldozer and she was run over by a bulldozer. That that kind of activity is what really etches. You can't really process that morally, logically, in any rational way. But her name was Rachel Corey. What was her name, Jake? Rachel Corey. Rachel Corey. Yeah, that's, that's, I'll never forget that. But Not to mention anyway, 9-11. Well, that's 9-11. Oh, we could have another whole other call on that. But Dave, try to put a summary on, on the call tonight, and then I, I know there's a few other people who want to chime in here, but uh, go ahead and just kind of close it out. Well, um, yeah, I was just uh, Oh, by the way, Julian Eichmann, do you know uh, Heichelin, do you know Julian Heichelin? I don't think Well, uh, we've had him on this call and uh, the one thing Julian has done that we really applaud is standing up for uh, the jury nullification process in our country. Uh, the jury education, uh, jury nullification, I mean, he's been jailed uh, 50, 60, uh, over 250 times, excuse me. But he lives in Israel. He had to go back to, to Israel. He left this country because he was being jailed so many times. But he is a staunch Zionist, and we've had him on this call. And he respectfully, you know, shared... Uh, uh, his 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 whole activism of of, of theory nullification and everything else, but at the same time he is um, a, a staunch Zionist, and he's he was a, a special guest on our call. <clears throat> but but go ahead and complete or do a summary, and we'll. I think we're going to have to close it out here by ten o'clock. <laughs> yeah, no. Nope. Excuse me, eleven o'clock. We got a couple of guests too, Fred, on Talkshoe that would probably like to ask questions. So I've, I've got several. Okay. Okay. Well, if you, if you, only if you can extend, if you want to stay over a little bit longer, normally we try to close it out at 11 o'clock Eastern. But, but go ahead. Well, uh, what, yeah, there's a lot of things we could talk about. I would like to We'd address. We'd love to have you back on, but I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to put a summary or, or, or period at the end of the sentence for tonight's call. <laughs> yeah, I give us a map which goes through the dispersal of Israel and the Khazar Jews and uh, how the Khazar Jews were the ones that um, came over into Ashkenaz and those were mixed with the Sephardic Jews and I've got a map showing all of the directions of where they went. So God warned his people that he would scatter them over the face of the earth if they were not obedient. He first did this with the Babylon exile which then led to the diaspora, in which most exiled Jews did not return home but stayed in Babylon or migrated to other places. Following Christ's warning that God's judgment was about to fall again, the Jews almost totally removed from Israel and scattered over North Africa and Southern Europe. The rise of the Catholic Church brought a horrible and hounding persecution of Jews wherever they fled, fulfilling God's curse. The persecution eventually forced the Israeli Jews to migrate to Eastern Europe, Western Russia, where they met and intermarried with the non-Israeli Khazar Jews. The Tsars of Russia then renewed the persecution which forced the Jews to immigrate from other areas of the world. 
So while the evidence of the Kaisar dilution of the Semitic bloodline is overwhelming, it's also certain that the Abrahamic bloodline does exist within the overall Jewish population and the world in Israel. So I have uh, a detail about approximately 80% of the Jews worldwide uh, today are Ashkenazi. Most Jews with extended histories in Europe are uh, Ashkenazi. And, uh, so anyway, I go through and look at the various groups of Jews, uh, the Jews today, and what each one of those people was designed So what I tell most of these atheists and uh, people that I share with, I say you look around and you see the animals, the trees, the flowers, the sun, the moon, the stars, the people, and you can know something about the creator from the creation. And the... I hear some noises. Yeah, somebody, somebody's in, doing noise in the background. Some... Well, I, I don't see where it's coming from unless there's a lot of people on talk show waiting for questions. They might That might okay. be where it's coming from. All right. Well, let's have another question. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to open it up one final time for anybody else, a comment or question. And I just wanted to say thank you to Dr. Lehman for coming on the call tonight. Uh, again, this is going to be a little... Uh, frenetic at the, at the tail end as we're trying to close it out, but it, is there anyone on TalkShoe that wanted to express or uh, a comment or pose a question? Go ahead. You're unmuted. I'm sorry? You're unmuted. Anybody on TalkShoe? Uh, talk Two guests on TalkShoe? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I guess we got someone on. I guess not. Okay. Anybody okay. on the re- on the regular line, a comment or a question, and then we're going to close out the call. Go ahead. Okay, I've got one, Fred. It's one of the guests. They don't have uh, the capability asking. So uh, one of the guests okay. on here is asking, uh, some people get taken in the rapture and some people get left, it seems. What distinguishes between those that go and those that stay? That's her question. Okay. True believers, this is uh, at the time of the rapture, people that have received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, this would include Jews as well as Christians, Anybody, we're all in the same category there. There's no Jew, there, there's no Greek, there's no male nor female. We're all in the same, we, we have to have Jesus. He that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things have I written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus said very clearly, I mean, John said very clearly in First in John, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of man but of God. And Jesus said, you know, you must be born again. So every person who has received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior has asked Jesus to become their Savior. And Jesus comes in to live with them. In Romans 8 it says, through his spirit who indwells us, he says, I neither height nor depth nor principality nor power nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we can't lose our salvation once we've received Christ. We can become a disobedient child, but we never become anything but his child. 
And if we become disobedient, then God disciplines us. He disciplines every son whom he receives. And without discipline, tell partakers, you're illegitimate children and not sons. So if you're a true son or a child of God, you will go up in the rapture. Now, there's a question as to what, and the rapture will occur before the tribulation, and you have that security. You're not going to lose it. So, so that that's one. Okay. Okay. Another comment or question, Steve? Do you want to repeat? Anybody else? I think we're uh, we're just coming coming up to the anybody end. On our, anybody on our main board that would like to add anything else, Sam? Yeah. Anybody? Else? anybody is Sam, you want to make one one last swing swing at it? Oh, oh, by the way, I wanted to acknowledge Jay Zelo's birthday this week. Everyone wish Jay a happy birthday, Jay. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday, Jay. I tapped you on Facebook. <laughs> well, let me... Uh, thank, let me... thank you, yeah, yesterday. <laughs> I, my truck broke down at 5 p.m., and I spent the whole rest of the night in a truck in a Peterbilt dealer, so that was my birthday. Oh my gosh! Sorry about that, Jay. Make it up to yourself sometime soon. <laughs> I'll try. I'm heading home right now. Oh good. Well, right, right, safe, Jake. Let me let me conclude with just uh, something about the United Nations Environmental Program. Sure. And this is the UNEP contacted the World Resources Institute to write came to be titled the Global Diversity Assessment, GBA. And this was in 1993. As the treaty came before the United States Senate for ratification in August of 1994, this, uh, this wise use of land rights groups across the country conducted a massive facts campaign to alert citizens of the dangers behind this treaty. It quickly became obvious why the United Nations did not want any nation to have the document before ratifying the treaty. This treaty, the GBA, was a 1,044-page report judges all human activities on the basis of two worldviews, Judeo-Christian and pantheistic. Anything from a Judeo-Christian heritage is automatically bad, and anything from a traditional, that's a pantheistic heritage, is good and offers a model for the future. This is what it says. The Western worldview is characterized by the denial of sacred attributes of nature which become firmly established about 2,000 years ago with the Judeo-Christian Islamic religious traditions. The worldview of traditional societies tends to be strikingly different from the modern view. They tend to view themselves as members of a community that not only includes other humans but also plants and animals as well as rocks, springs, and pools. People are members of a community of beings, living and non-living, thus rivers may be viewed as our mothers. Animals may be treated as kin. The many restraints by traditional societies on the use of natural resources, including the protection of sacred sites, may have evolved culturally in response to the need to ensure more sustainable use of biological populations and conservation of biological diversity. So according to this view, the human population has exceeded the capacity of the biosphere to sustain it. This is why they keep trying to remove the population down to, according to the Georgia Guidestones, 500 million. To maintain our current global population of 5 to 7 billion people, we must reduce our standard of living to that of an agricultural world in which most human beings are peasants. 
This is their belief. If becoming an agrarian peasant is not to your liking, the GBA provides an alternative. In other words, a reasonable population estimate for an industrialized world society at the present North American material standard of living would be 1 billion people. As March 26, 2015, it's estimated, and this is what I figured, there were 7.154 billion on the planet. That means they have to live, believe they have to eliminate six billion people, and this is uh, this is the President's Council on Sustainable Development. And was this treaty passed, David? Is that what? Was this treaty passed? The Biodiversity Treaty is something that is being passed a piecemeal. It's okay. going through um, actually, President. This this was signed by um, Bush, and then in 1994 it was continued to be uh, pushed forward in the form of executive orders, but it hasn't been passed. No. Okay. So now what they're doing is they're coming with these mega regions, which are kind of 11 mega regions are kind of like this overzoning that I was talking about before. Yeah. High density housing conglomerate municipalities are making new laws and goals that supersede the local laws because you don't want to go against the laws of your your own region, do you? And the problem is the regions cross state boundaries, city boundaries, county boundaries because a deer doesn't know when he's going from one state to the next. <clears throat> Sam, if I heard your voice. Is that you? you? Want to have one last shot, Sam? No, I, I no, I, I'm okay. Okay. Anybody else comment or question? Yeah, I'd uh, like to finish uh, saying, my goodness, this is a blessing. We don't have APAC running everything in our country. We're lucky about that, aren't we? Anybody else? Uh, David, are you still there? Hello? Um, I don't... What happened? Did he drop? Oh, I, I guess he, he did drop. I don't see him. He, he disappeared. Let's see if the phone happened, but that's probably the end of the segment. But no, I'm, I don't see him for a... He just dropped off the call like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well... Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I, I'm, I've never met anybody except our other guests that was uh, so supportive of Benjamin Netanyahu, but I strongly do not support his views with him. I would have to say if there is a God, then he would certainly, I would be scared if my name was Benjamin Netanyahu because I'd be afraid the lightning would strike me any day. So, uh, uh, I don't think he's. I, I, I don't think he's a Christian. I don't think he's uh, approaching to be a oh, Christian. Our general, our oh, he's on again. He, he's, uh, he's back again. Yeah. Uh, back to yeah, yeah. I my phone. Back. Back. Oh, I figured your phone died. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. We can say good night to you properly then. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dave, I don't know if you heard, but uh, you know, Steve did make a comment, and uh, the the undue influence of the Jewish lobby over our government here in America is is 
something of a discussion that's been ongoing. You probably are aware of that. And uh, there are two professors from the University of Chicago who wrote, wrote a book about that a few years back. And um, so at least from a dialogue discussion standpoint, that's, you know, Steve chimed in there. We don't want to leave on a bad note, but, you know, there are some hard feelings about that, okay? It's not, yes, I um, disagree with that 100%. You what? I would disagree with that 100%. Okay, well, we, we don't want to get into a whole discussion on that point right now to end the call. But, but I, I, that was, I would like to discuss that sometime in more detail if there okay, is a well, chance. We can we can perhaps have you back on to to illuminate and shed light on in that area. But we uh, appreciate what you shared with us on the call tonight. Uh, obviously, you're well read, uh, and uh, we uh, I hope you get a website or something up, Dave, because you do interact with a lot of these people in 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 these communities, and uh, would like to follow your work more directly. I know you're not on Facebook, but uh, maybe Brett, your friend, or Brett is the one who introduced me to you. Yeah, maybe some, some people can help you get 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 some of this stuff out uh, on your work, or maybe you have some PDF uh, files out there you could you could post or share. But uh, again, we've had people from all walks of life on this call. We appreciate having the dialogues. Uh, not all of us are going to agree with one another, uh, but. Um, May I ask you know, one you, question you, you, before he goes? Yeah. Go ahead, Ray. This won't take me a second. I mean, I've, I've got Go reams of things that I would love to, to ask, and I hope he comes back, and I'll okay. I'll uh, ask it then. But I'm just curious, Dr. Lehman, you say that Israel that's over there now is a fulfillment of prophecy, Israel back in the land. I disagree with that. Now, I... I am a Christian. I am a dispensationalist. I'm probably what you might even call a ultra or hyper dispensationalist. I, but that's that's not for tonight's discussion. But what I'm trying to say is is that I believe that what's over there to, today is not a fulfillment of prophecy, but rather it's a satanic counterfeit of that, and that it was a creation by the Rothschilds. Um, what I think you have there, according to Scripture, is that he gathers up the dry bones. And the dry bones are not are not believers. No, they're very anti-believers. And yet the people are there. So then he takes that the dry bones and puts flesh on them, and they have a rebirth. So yes, there's uh, Jews are not Christians, and they're not... Uh, but they have a lot of good work ethic, considering... I did a thing on Islam, and during a 10-day period where the Jews and the Islam's holy days overlapped for about 10 days, the, um, I can't remember the exact number of wars, battles that the Muslims did during that time while the Jews worked on their, and I don't remember, 57th Nobel Prize. I mean, that's the difference. I, I do believe the Jews themselves have high work ethic. They have a lot of good qualities. And that yes, they're not believers, but God is going to change that. Well, I would I would disagree with the timing on this. Um, I actually believe that the rapture is is I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture as well, but I believe it's a signless event. Um, but my question to you is this: Who would you today identify as 
the people that are described in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, the two verses read very closely to one another. And uh, basically, they're, they're talking about a people that say that they're Jews, but they're not, but they're the synagogue of Satan. Who would you say that those people are today? I, w- I would venture to say that's the one just running the whole show. Um, well... Apparently, they were they were Gentile converts of Judaizers uh, who were trying to impose Judaism on Christianity with its law and priesthood. And they claimed the apostles were disturb, you know disturbing the church at Ephesus and Smyrna, and then claiming to have become Jews were plaguing the church. So these two groups of heretics were beginning a corruption of Christianity, which eventually would pervade the church for a thousand years, imposing an imagined apostolic secession, continuing priesthood, both would subjugate the ordinary people of the churches. And they, it's kind of like the Catholics today. Wow. Okay. Well, if it's kind of like the Catholics, I don't, I don't, I don't see anybody that's Catholics or even kind of like Catholics that's claiming to be Jews. It has to be someone that's, that's claiming to be Jews, but that they're not. What it but could be they're... referring to is the ceremonial aspects of the Catholic Church, uh, the, the priesthood, for example, the us versus them, uh, hierarchical, centralized power structure. Yeah, the apostolic succession, the continuing priesthood, both would subjugate the ordinary people in the churches. In the nickel, uh, and this is the thing that I talk about, everybody's Every religion, except for biblical Christianity, puts themselves between you and God because they have to. If they didn't, there weren't, they wouldn't be needed. I had a private audience with Pope John Paul II. I went through 45 doctrines the Catholic Church introduced. I said none of them are found in Scripture. Most of them go directly against what Scripture teaches. You had teaches. a private audience with Pope John Paul too? They asked me to come over there in 1984, yes. Wow. And, okay. So I went through 45 doctrines of the Catholic Church that the Pope, and I talked to Basil Meeking, head of the Ecumenical Council, and I, and I went through all 45 of them, and I said, you know, add to that, monks, nuns, holy days, 30 days, Lent, novellus, charms. You say, we don't have charms. I said, what about the scapular? And there you have it, a steadily increasing departure from the simplicity of Christ, a departure that's so radical it's left a drastically anti-evangelical church today. And the reason why you can't be an evangelical and a Catholic at the same time was largely said at the Council of Trent between 1546 and 1563 with more than 100 anathemas against anybody who would supposedly go against an infallible church council or an infallible pope. And one of the anathemas was against anybody who could know for sure they were saved. Because if you could know for sure you were saved, then the pope isn't necessary, the Korea aren't necessary, the sacraments aren't necessary, the priests aren't necessary, the whole thing crumbles to the ground and nobody likes to be without a job. But that's the same thing with Mormonism, with every other group. They put themselves between you and God. Only Christianity has you can go directly to so Christ. So how did the Pope receive all of this, David? What's that? How did, how did JP2 receive all of this? Well, Basil Meeking quit his job a week after I left. So I'm not sure. Oh. Okay. Right. I left a bunch of stuff. Well, on those points, I would agree with you. Okay. Uh, Guys, we're going to have to close it off. Uh, David, we thank you for spending over two hours of your time tonight on our call. Uh, I hope we can uh, invite you back uh, to 
take one of these subjects and explore it in more detail. I'm, I'm sure uh, many many of our listeners would like to have an opportunity to to illuminate some of these other subjects. So, uh, but uh, guys, feel free to stay on the call, talk and, and chat. But uh, we appreciate your time, David, and, and thank you so much. And, and hats off to our friend Brett Gilliland uh, from Facebook for introducing us to you. And uh, uh, again, on behalf of uh, all of us so thanks thanks again and we'll stay in touch. All right. Thanks a lot. God Bye. bless everyone. Take care. Thanks Didi. Thanks Steve. Thanks Betty. Thanks Ray. Sam. Thank you. A U N American Underground Network. <laughs> <laughs>